0: Hello and welcome to the UCC Translational Medicine Society's radio show and podcast, Narrowing the Void. This show aims to facilitate student learning and foster student engagement in translational medical research by talking to leading experts in the fields of medical research and basic science. My name is Mark VC. I'm joined with my co-host, Brian Curtin. Today, we are joined by Dr. Shivano Mahani. Shivano Mahani studied neuroscience in UCC and went on to complete a master's in neuropharmacology in the National University of Ireland, Galway. Siobhan worked in the Department of Psychiatry and Neuropsychology in the University of Maastricht, the Netherlands, which was funded by a Marie Curie Fellowship. Siobhan obtained a PhD from the University College Corps in the Department of Psychiatry. Siobhan's main research areas assess outcomes of adverse events during early life, in particular the disruption of the developing gut microbiota, She is also interested in gender-related differences in pain perception as well as the involvement of the gut microbiota in the development of obesity following antipsychotic treatment. So Siobhan, thank you very much for joining us today. My pleasure. So I suppose to start off Siobhan, could you tell us a little bit about who you are and what you're doing in UCC?
1: Absolutely. Um, So very nice introduction Mark, thanks so much. I suppose it was an overview of of bits and pieces that I've done in my life. Um, So I am a senior lecturer in the Department of Anatomy. I'm a mother of two children. I have a seven-year-old girl and a ten-year-old boy. Um, I'm married. My husband is Peter. Uh, he runs his own business, clean room technology, and we live near Kinsale. Um, I'm originally from Tipperary, so I moved down, I suppose, from Tipperary in 1997 to start my education here in University College Cork. Loved it so much. I came back. <laughs> now I'm working here for for a good number of years, uh, mainly on looking, uh, lecturing obviously, and lectured maybe some of you guys, uh, neuroscience students as well as pharmacists, potential pharmacists, potential nurses, as well as graduate entry to medicine students as well. So um, yeah, and then I suppose besides lecturing then as well, I carry out um, research program particularly related to stress and the microbiome.
2: That's brilliant. Yeah, and Siobhan, yeah, I guess. Uh, uh, the large majority of your research focuses on the brain-gut-microbiota axis. So for our listeners who might be fully familiar with the term, could you explain to us what it is and its role in human health?
1: Absolutely. Um, and I suppose we, and apologies, we do talk about the microbiota gut brain access as if, you know, it's a well known entity and I suppose we're used to talking at conferences, but we need to kind of bring it more into the public eye now. And I suppose if we think about it, it's, it's really focused on the bacteria within your bowel. So you have bacteria everywhere, lots of different, sorry, lots of different microorganisms everywhere in your body. I focus particularly on the bacteria at the distal end or the end of your gut. So it's the end of your gut or your large intestine and particularly this part of the intestine is important because it has the largest number of bacteria or microorganisms of your entire body it has a huge amount of them so i suppose research went back to look at why we had so many bacteria or microorganisms here and what are they doing they can actually secrete substances that are and that are secreted within the nervous system and can interact with the nervous system so i suppose we started looking eventually or originally at what these microbiome were doing and if they were altered by stress so we know that there's a certain number uh, of good bacteria that needs to be within the gut and we've heard of certain products i won't name any um, labels, but we've seen certain products on the, the shelves in the supermarket that promote good gut health and good gut bacteria that need to reside there. So you need this balance of good bacteria. What on earth are they doing there? They're producing substances that can actually interact with their own nervous system within the gut, but also the nervous system, the peripheral nervous system, and also the central nervous system. So the products they produce, such as metabolites, short chain fatty acids, neurotransmitters, can get into your systemic blood travel around the body to maintain maintain health Um inappropriate imbalances are associated with disease, but they can interact with your entire body and brain to lead to a healthy body and brain and also be disruptive in disease situations.
0: And could you tell us a little bit about the most recent research that you've been carrying out?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So we just had a paper published or accepted on Sunday. Um, and it was a paper associated with early life stress. So I began and I set up a model here um, a long time ago, 2004, um, a model of maternal separation. So it's a model of early life stress. So both in rodents, humans, and um, and primates, there is this very important developmental time window called the stress hyperresponsive period. So in all of us and in our our models that we look at and and focus on and use to study stress in early life, this is the period when you should have a very low stress level very important during this period and in rodents it exists between uh, postnatal day zero so the day they're born up until about 14 days of age while in humans it exists between maybe um, being born and up until about five years of age so very important keeping your stress levels low at this time is your mother so we know from certain studies human studies rodent studies that stroking of the mother at a certain velocity actually reduces and maintains a low level of cortisol in humans and corticosterone in rats which is the main stress hormone You want to keep low levels of stress hormones during this time because your brain is developing, your immune system is developing, but also your gut bacteria is also starting to colonise and interact with the entire body. So our latest paper really focused on um, looking at the impact of this model on the gut microbiome and the visceral pain sensitivity of these adult rats, basically. It's a rat model. We want to investigate mechanisms. We also want to investigate interventions to reduce the impact of early life stress. So I've carried out a number of human studies as well, and breastfeeding, of course, is, is the optimal way to be fed and the gold standard way to be fed in early life. So it's not always possible to breastfeed a baby. So this this particular project that we got out on Sunday looked at a component of breast milk called milk fat globular membrane. It's basically the fat membrane that sits, or it's basically the, the protein membrane that sits outside the fat globules in breast milk. And who could think that just a membrane like that sitting outside the fat could be so important? Studies have shown that when you extract this membrane and give it by itself to um, porcine models, so pig models, now we've shown in rodent models as well, it actually reduces the impact of stress but also enhances cognition. It's been placed into infant formulas as well to show that it has reduced infections and so on. So that was our very, very, very latest preclinical paper.
2: (laughs) And I think it it just goes to show just how, how important our... Evolutionary, our evolution is, and one. I think we had a lecture, a brilliant lecture a few weeks back by uh, Dr. Jens Walter at APC, (laughs) and he was discussing how our ancestral microbiomes. Because uh, yeah. he did, I think he travelled to Papua New Guinea yeah. and looked at their, their microbiomes and was, was comparing, contrasting between our Western, modern uh, microbiomes and their much more ancestrals. And, and I was just wondering, could you explain to our listeners some of the diversity that we might have lost um, yeah. over the years from, from not only um, a reduction in the quality of food, but also antibiotics yeah, yeah. and perhaps uh, an increased... Uh, focus on hygiene perhaps to a hyper degree
1: uh, absolutely <clears throat> no and that would be an area of focus that I look at as well Is so particularly during the during pregnancy and the birthing process as well which are times when we do see stressors antibiotics and different ways to be born um so we know that stress during pregnancy or antibiotics during pregnancy can potentially impact on the developing baby and the developing baby's gut And then depending on, you know, genetics and the environment and the food and so on, of course, it's going to impact on which bacteria take up residence in the gut in the very early age of life, which are most important. But all of these factors actually do lead to a differential microbiome taking up residence, which affects the whole development of the body and the brain so we know from studies that antibiotics in early life we've carried out a preclinical study so an animal model study and um, looking at the impact of antibiotics in early life now we did take a very um it was more kind of a proof of principle concept because we used a very strong and high dose of, a, of an antibiotic in our animal model which wouldn't be seen generally in the clinic so it was just to determine initially if antibiotics in the stress hyper responsive period that i alluded to actually reduce the bacterial composition or reduce the bacterial diversity which is how many different types of bugs are actually there because you want lots of them because they all have like little communities like we have and they all talk to each other and actually interact with each other and help each other grow and produce their substances. So you want a high diversity, but you also want the good bacteria there as well. So the probiotic ones, the ones that produce short chain fatty acids, for example. So you might have heard of those such as lactobacillus and bifidobacteria. So when we talk about, I suppose, reduced diversity and reduced, I suppose, types of bacteria, the types of research I look at and investigate um, leading to this would be stressors during pregnancy, antibiotic usage during pregnancy and early life, and also being born by C-section, which we know both antibiotics and being born by C-section have risen over the last few years. Ireland's rates of C-section are, are quite high in comparison to, for example, Nordic countries. And there are many, many reasons for C-section and antibiotics, but we do need to look closely at when these are absolutely needed, because now research is coming to the fore. Uh, Clinical research as well showing the long-term impacts of being born by C-section and and antibiotics. So whilst they're medically necessary in certain situations, I suppose we just need to um, investigate and determine when is the most appropriate time for these to actually occur.
0: Okay. And Siobhan, could you tell us a little <coughs> bit about your work on uh, antipsychotics and how they relate to both obesity and also the gut microbiota? Yeah,
1: absolutely. So this, this was a study we carried out a few years ago now and, um, and we've picked up again more recently with a colleague of mine. So we started to investigate the impact of olanzapine, which is an antipsychotic, and a very good antipsychotic, to be fair, in the clinic. Um, and my PhD supervisor from, from a few years ago, Ted Dinan, um, had seen it firsthand that olanzapine whilst very good at its job and and reducing psychotic symptoms particularly in females causes enormous weight gain and he would talk about these women that would walk into the clinic you know quite slim he would put them on olanzapine because they really required it and they would not comply you know they would they would not, um, not take their medication anymore because of the enormous weight gain and it wasn't just weight gain so it's not just actually body fat they gained as well they also would tend to develop metabolic syndrome which can have huge detrimental effects such as development of diabetes and so on and cardiac problems so he saw this firsthand and and said you know would we investigate this so we had a joint phd student at the time so we generated a model of of anzapine induced uh, metabolic syndrome awakening, and we had and this is where you know I, I do I do carry out research in animal models and humans and so whilst we can do some types of research in either of them. This is the time when I suppose we needed to see if there was a translation because we know there is a difference between male and female microbiome as well and um, in humans we saw that the weight gain wasn't as evident in males. So we compared male and female mice at the time I think it was um, to see if there was a differential weight gain and a metabolic syndrome in, in between the different sexes in rats and indeed there was. But what was interesting was that the females gained the weight, so their body weight was was um, increased to to much higher level than the male rats. But the male rats had a lot of visceral fat as well as the females and also developed metabolic syndrome. So whilst it wasn't obvious ex- externally on the male rats, um, they were still suffering from olanzapine-like side effects. It reduced the diversity of the microbiome and interacted with certain species that are beneficial for the body as well. What we did then again, kind of using antibiotics as a proof of principle or concept, we knocked out, I suppose, some of the, the bacteria within the, the gut of these animals. So we went forward only with the female rats as a model of olanzapine-induced metabolic syndrome. And we noticed that when we knocked out the microbiome before taking olanzapine, or before administering olanzapine, the overall weight gain was reduced and also the symptoms of metabolic syndrome, such as inflammation and fat deposits in the liver, were also reduced. Now, of course, we talk about the detrimental effects of of antibiotics, but if we think about them in certain contexts of maybe balancing a microbiome or or making it less susceptible to, for example, a landsbane in this instance, they can be used for other uh, benefits besides just infection, uh, maintenance and reduction.
2: And you just touched on there, uh, Siobhan, <coughs> but could you t- explain to us in greater depth some of the gender-related differences yeah. in pain perception, stress, yeah. and the gut microbiota?
1: Absolutely, and I suppose we we um, we do have lots of differences, uh, males and female gendered, humans and, and rats as well, but um, there is a major interaction between your gut microbiome and your hormones, so your gonadal hormones. So the t- typically born males and females have different uh, levels of gonadal hormones. So if this is the bidirectional communication between your gut microbiome and the hormones, then we potentiated our our thought about the fact that, well, if your microbiome is associated with pain levels, I had shown it in my my earlier days in my RAT model, um, I wanted to see then where the differential microbiomes of males and female humans associate with different pain levels. So we carried out a study on really nice volunteers from UCC a few years ago. where we exposed uh, male and females, males were brought into the clinic on one time point, and we exposed them to a tibial nerve stimulation in the Department of Neurophysiology and CUH, and it was in um, collaboration with George Shorten and Brian McNamara in Neurophysiology, and George is in uh, the Department of Anesthesiology. So um, you know it was a really n- a nice joint collaboration between us all, and John Crying was involved, of course, as well. Um, so we collected samples from males at uh, human males at one time point they were exposed to the, uh, the pain stimulation we collected blood samples collected faecal samples for gut microbiota analysis and we also collected salivary cortisol in the morning to look at their stress hormones as well um, and we then we did a number of different analyses looking at short-chain fatty acids and so on now we asked the, the women to come in at three different time points over a month to, to gather samples and data at three at the three different stages of the the human female cycle again to see if there was sex differences but then if there was differences across the female cycle associated with um, um, hormonal changes now we had a subset of women on the the contraceptive pill as well and there was um, differences between males and females with regard to their microbiome subtle differences but there was fairly decent differences then between the pain perception between males and females overall over the female cycle there were subtle differences but not so significant we also found major associations then between certain microbiota and pain sensation only in females so this may i suppose indicate we know that some pain syndromes are more prevalent in females maybe they present in the clinic more it's some some disorders it's not really sure but um what we do know from this study is that there's a gender difference in pain perception between males and females, and that the gut microbiome does seem to drive some of the pain responses in females only.
0: Okay, that's really interesting. Yeah. And just moving away from some of the um, scientific literature and research, Siobhan, and talking a, bit, little, a little bit more about your career itself, yeah. what has a challenge been along your career that you faced?
1: Um, I suppose certain challenges. Uh, to be honest, I've been very, very lucky with where I've been placed, I suppose. Um, and I've had you know really good opportunities. There have been I suppose challenges when you know having children, these yeah. have been challenges. You know you have this, this um, want to be everything, you want to be a good scientist, you want to be a good lecturer but you also you know some people tend to want to be a mother as well and you want to be there for your children. I honestly would think that has been the biggest challenge of my career is balancing my work and my life and and you know making sure that i spend enough time with my children and we have a happy home life as well so um jobs like ours have deadlines of course and grant deadlines may happen in the middle of the easter holidays so it's trying to meet those deadlines before they occur to actually ensure then we have a happy time at home and And we can actually, you know, interact as a family outside of the work life.
0: And to both men and women, what advice could you offer for trying to balance work and family?
1: Yeah, I would say um, it is one that you do need to be aware of. And maybe in the early years of your career, you feel like you've got to drive it on and just, you know, get on and start your career. And I think there's nothing wrong with that. And that's what I did. I pushed things on at the start and, you know, had a stable level of where I was research-wise and and, and my career-wise. And then I would say... Take a good hard long, long look at your life then and see if you do have this balance. If you're always feeling your sympathetic nervous system activated and none of that parasympathetic rest and digest, you need to take a breather. You really do. Um, and just do some yoga, reflexology, some exercise, take some good yogurts as well. Lovely.
2: <laughs> and what have been some of the biggest changes you've observed and researched on since you've you started your career out?
1: I think one of the biggest changes um, we've seen is is this belief in the microbiome within our gut. When we started, I suppose in two thousand and four, honestly, it was like voodoo. Um, people, you know, thought we were absolutely crazy. So myself and Ted Dinan and John Cryan um, established the, the Microbiome Gut Brain Access Lab uh, many years ago, and then it just wasn't, you know, it wasn't heard of that your bacteria within your bowel could actually affect your brain. So I suppose the driving of that concept forward, which both Ted and John have been amazing, you know, amazing at traveling the world, spreading the news about this and that it actually can happen, probably was one of the biggest things in my early career. Um, then I suppose in my my I don't want to say later years, but more recently, there honestly for for a good number of years there hasn't been enough money put into women's research and women's diseases. So over the last few years, and women's tech to improve women's disease and women's health. And not that everything is about women or does need to be about women, but there hasn't been enough research um, carried out or enough money put into to women's research. Um, I don't mean women carrying out research, I mean women's diseases. And then, um, But over the last few years, there really has been a drive just to balance things because a lot of disorders are more prevalent in females, I suppose, and maybe it's a way just to look at mechanism a little bit more easily with a higher power, you know? So, um, yeah, so those would be the two biggest changes I would have seen.
0: Who or what inspires you?
1: Oh, golly. <laughs> Don't I sound so mushy? <laughs> My parents um, would absolutely, ha- they, they have always been such hard workers um, and would get up so early to go to work. Um, and, you know, it would be, you know, work really hard and then we can have our weekends and relax um I suppose uh, my husband has inspired my career. It, honestly, if it wasn't for him I wouldn't have had my PhD. Um and it has it was hard then. It's not now. It's great now. Um but I suppose um yeah and and my kids as well. Honestly, I do think I have achieved the work-life balance now and I'm in a happy place. Um, and then, of course, there's been amazing people in my career. Ted Dynan and John Crine have been those as well. And an amazing women as well in my life as well that have really helped me and helped me achieve what I, I really wanted to get. Um, so a big shout out to, to all of those men and women that I've helped me along Super the way.
2: Brilliant. And with so summer exams aren't too far away for... Yes. Many of our <laughs> students listening in, Siobhan. Um, yeah. So could you tell us about your research on the different learning styles of students yeah. and how this may impact on their exam results?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So um, fortunately or unfortunately, I think it's fortunately because we're going ahead now, we're, we're, we're understanding a little bit more about the different learning preferences and learning styles of, of students. And uh, I suppose until a few years ago, we were all probably still teach students very much the same or think that we can teach students the same but i suppose now with the drive in our department there's a lot of drive towards universal um, um, you know um, learning as well so making diverse learning technologies and and modes available so there's a large amount in our department as well looking at this but i suppose we discovered in our small amount of research that we did that students do sometimes like to listen they like to use their hands they like to um you know verbalize or they actually like to you know um just relax completely and listen to everything so with the different types of learning styles and and preferences then that would be how you would learn yourself i suppose there is only a certain amount of styles that we can generate and and use to teach practically but that's where COVID has actually come in and been good i think what we have and particularly within our department as well and especially down to our our technicians and and demonstrators we've generated this whole bank of video demonstrations now and different ways to 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 teach online Um, we were supposed thrown in at the deep end initially but then now when i look back at the resources we've generated together we're actually going forward and using those continually now as well as you know face-to-face lectures actually some of our students have asked and said we they don't need us face to face anymore they would like more tutorial style teaching, so I do a lot of Socratic quizzes now. So um, instead of delivering my anatomy lecture, so I teach anatomy to graduate entry medicine students. So instead of te- you know, genu- you know, sitting there teaching anatomy of the gastrointestinal tract, which is what I teach them, it's a basic gut tube. It's a basic tube. Um, they want me to come in and say, you know you have these lovely recorded lectures let's leave them there and let's use those as a resource for when we need them but you know will you just talk to us in a more interactive way so we do stock of quizzes together and then you know I bring up pictures of, of the GI tract or elements associated with the GI tract for example we talk about the most difficult elements of it for example the neurovasculature is quite more difficult to understand than the epithelial lining for example so I've tried to, I suppose, open up from my small bit of research in in different learning styles to try and teach in different ways. Examinations are are still being, I suppose, changed a little bit. We do have examination styles in in set ways within UCC that still need to stick to that way for now. Um, But I suppose if students at least have their learning style or preferences open to them and given to them, maybe that will enhance grades going forward. I know, and
0: I, I think Socrative is a really popular way. Yeah. I know like we've involved, um, a number of our teachers have, have engaged us in that in class and it's been really popular. Yeah. Um, Siobhan, is there any areas of translational medicine that you kind of see as you know really vital in the future yeah. um, or gaps in the, the field, I suppose?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So as my, my most recent research would be on um, uh, stress during pregnancy, I suppose, and if we think that's really where... I suppose we originate and trying to I suppose reduce the impact of stressors um, during pregnancy can actually reduce the impact and risk of diseases in the offspring so it could potentially be you know this early life start at a very very early stage and even preconception actually so preconception health is is very much intertwined then even with the mother's pregnancy but also with baby's health and the risk of disease so maybe trying to get at mechanisms at a very early time points and I have lovely collaborations with um, a Finnish group uh, called Finbrain. And we're doing some really nice studies looking at stress during pregnancy, um, different metabolites that are produced and so on. And then uh, placental development. And also uh, they've gathered all this lovely neuroimaging of the children as well and followed the children up until about 20. So we're trying to capture all this data uh, in a general cohort to see if we can predict um, in a normal healthy situation, which should be normal healthy, what's, you know, biomarkers or what things we can actually quickly and easily measure um in very early stages so during pregnancy potentially to to uh, predict disease in later life so it's trying to stop disease before it happens hopefully
2: and uh, Siobhan why did you choose this career path to begin with and had you always seen yourself going down this route
1: no (laughs) (laughs) no uh I had wanted to be a biochemist yeah, I yeah, had wanted to be a biochemist. My sister uh, is a year older than me and she chose biochemistry as her outlet. In uh, so She started off in, in biological and chemical sciences uh, as I did and I started one year later. So she chose biochem in her third year and I did too at the time but I broke uh, my left wrist playing soccer. Uh, at that time then there wasn't very much Uh, spoken about that you could maybe defer your exams or that you should get a scribe. No, I actually broke my right arm, excuse me. Broke my right arm. I had broke my left arm years before. So um, study didn't happen well that year, nor did uh, the writing quickly, which, you know, writing of essays was probably... Most of our exams at the time were essay writing. Um, So I think it was a lucky mishap, maybe, that I, I, I achieved my place in neuroscience that year. From the minute I entered into neuroscience, I knew that it was what I wanted to do. So, in essence, I was really, really lucky for something odd to happen to me to lead to lead that path. So,
0: yeah. It all works out in the end, <laughs> I suppose, yeah. yeah. And Svon, could you tell us how your experience of working abroad, you know, in Maastricht and in the Netherlands, um, how has that influenced both your career and just your, your engagement in research?
1: Yeah, I have to say... Um, uh, it was amazing so um, they were a very supportive group in, in Maastricht uh, it's a beautiful town at the, the I was going to say the disland at the the bottom <laughs> of the bottom of the Netherlands you know it's in the little if you can see if I don't know if you can imagine a map of the Netherlands there is a little um, part that hangs down off it and it's called the appendix of the Netherlands so <laughs> maybe that's from my research and the gut started um, but it's a it's a beautiful little town so um, when I was doing my masters in Galway they said you know there's an opportunity to travel and do research uh one of the places to go is maastricht and would you like to go there and um so i did and my part my husband he was my boyfriend at the time traveled with me and two other uh, girls from my class came as well so it was lovely but at the time there was a real uh surge of marie curie fellows in the department and um, so it was the department of psychiatry and neuropsychology uh run by uh, professor harry steinbush who still runs that department so there was a, a, a large influx of foreign people and i quite I just felt it was odd that they were calling us foreign because we, you know, don't use the word so much here. We do maybe now, but, you know, I would have thought it was kind of, a, a, you know, kind of maybe disrespectful or not a nice thing to say, but no, they were referring to us as many foreigners have, you know, arrived now. So there was loads of Italians, loads of Spanish, um, and then we interacted, obviously, with, with the Dutch people that were there as well. Um, but it was a fantastic time. I spent, originally we were just destined to spend six months there. Um, And then the research was going really well. So I spent another six months there. Um, And they did offer me a PhD to stay. But I think I am a bit more of a home bird. So I definitely wanted to come back to Ireland. But um, I was just taught so much independence there. It was outstanding. So um, they have amazing facilities. But they just drove you on to just get on with it yourself. You can read this book. You can learn these techniques. um, You know, adequate amount of training. But the, the level of independence that was taught to me was was life-changing and I came back and started my PhD and and started a lab um, with Ted Dinan and I knew exactly what to do so I got two papers published just from that year in Maastricht itself because it was a taught master so there was no we did a small uh, research project in the masters itself in Galway and and they were a great great uh, set up there as well in Galway and being having this opportunity of a year abroad and two papers to get me started before my PhD was was an amazing um opportunity to have so yeah i know the the guys there in the netherlands i have some really good dutch friends there as well still and i've um good dutch friends here too yeah.
2: and could you tell us about the role that translational medicine has played in your career in terms of promoting a higher level of collaboration and interaction among the scientists carrying out the research to clinicians yeah. treating the patients and the patients treating themselves the patients the doctors are treating yeah Themselves.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um no, I suppose from the, 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 the get go maybe I was aware that collaborations between, you know, basic scientists and clinicians needed to occur for, for patients to eventually receive the treatments that we were investigating. Um, as as Ted Island a psychiatrist was my PhD supervisor. So from then on I did do a lot of preclinical research and testing um uh, lead compounds for for GlaxoSmithKline um, for for a little while after my PhD as well, um, but I suppose it's more in kind of the the more recent years as well, carrying out research. Um, in human studies as well, particularly associated with uh, the pain studies we spoke about and also the pregnancy uh, studies we've spoken about as well and trying to then work and develop interventions for the mechanisms that we've discovered associated with stress and the microbiome. So, so we've touched on some of, of and come kind of closer to some of these interventions being developed. So um, there's some exciting uh, uh, avenues now being opened up to me where, where we can potentially develop new new therapies and interventions for reduction of stress.
0: Super. And just we're coming to the end now, Siobhan, so there's one more question we'd like to ask. It's what's one piece of advice that you would give to the younger version of self that we as college students could learn from?
1: Uh, Go to college. (laughs) It is a good, like, it is a good opportunity. um, And some of our students maybe don't attend all their classes, particularly now because we stayed at home and maybe we think it's a good idea to stay at home. It's not. Come to college for each other, support each other. I suppose um, I did find socialising quite difficult I had a very small class in college but I still and it's not that I came from a small school or anything but um, I found socialising and and interaction quite difficult Um, so having that supportive level and maybe students being more aware and I think mental health issues and stress and anxiety issues are a lot more obvious now and acceptable now so I think I did have a level of social anxiety that did prevent me turning up to college at times so i suppose um supporting your colleagues if they look like they're not turning up or if they're not doing well maybe supporting each other because eventually it'll come around where you need support yourself so maybe you know there's a reason why somebody isn't coming in or or looking a little bit like kind of left out so i would say um yeah having that support and eventually it did kick in having that support as well which is obviously um how i got here so i've had a lot of support since
0: That's some fantastic advice. Thank you very much, (laughs) Siobhan. And thank you so much, Siobhan, for joining us today. It's been a pleasure.
1: My pleasure too. Thanks, guys. Super.